title this morning is Direct Your Heart to the Lord. Direct Your Heart to the Lord. In 2008, the economic crisis led to many suicides. Senior executives of Freddie Mac, HSBC Bank, money manager for European Royals, to name just a few. Uh, in 1929, the stock market crashed, which also led to a string of suicides. Uh, writing about that, uh, Tim Keller in this book, Counterfeit Gods, if you haven't had a chance, this is a doozy. This is so good. So, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller, he writes this. There is a difference between sorrow and despair. Sorrow is pain for which there are sources of consolation. Sorrow comes from losing one good thing among other good things. So that if you experience a career reversal, you can find comfort in your family to get you through it. Despair, however, is inconsolable because it comes from losing an ultimate thing. When you lose the ultimate source of your meaning or hope, There are no alternative sources to turn to. It breaks your spirit. You see, what Keller is after there is when we build our lives on things, even good things, even morally neutral things, or we might even find this morning even sometimes biblical things, and we make those things an ultimate thing, the ultimate source of meaning or hope for life, we have entered into idolatry. Idolatry is much more than a statue that is worshipped. We turn all sorts of things into idolatry. We turn beauty and money and power and gyms and hobbies and careers and stadiums and spouses and children and, and, and temporary things made ultimate the thing. A man starts into a career to provide for his family. That's a good thing. That's even a biblical thing. And somewhere that man becomes so consumed with the lure of money and power and advancement, suddenly the good thing becomes an ultimate thing. This is idolatry. Despair sets in when we make a good thing an ultimate thing. And that thing was never created to be an ultimate thing. So when that thing that we've become made to be an ultimate thing is gone... Uh, There's nowhere to turn. It's the ultimate thing. Thus, despair is what Keller is pointing out. Because the good thing turned into an ultimate thing gave gave you or I a sense of affirmation or success or accomplishment. This thing became something that you run to, you hope in, you trust in, you find satisfaction from. Good things are not to be an ultimate thing. Personal example, when the kids were young, my idol of comfort was often exposed. I wanted peace and quiet. I deserved peace and quiet. It's been a long day. I want to come home. I want to kick my feet up. Somebody get me some iced tea. 
It's time to rest. That's a good thing. That's a biblical thing. It's time to rest. But the problem is my children didn't understand that this is my ultimate thing. As if they woke up that morning discussing, you know, when dad gets home, we are so going to wreck his rest. That's our goal for the day. Kids would regularly wreck my idol of comfort. And I would sin to get my ultimate thing at that moment. You know you've got an idol when you're willing to sin to get it. I wanted something from family life that only God could give. I was asking of my children to give me ultimate peace. My kids weren't created to do such things. You see, idolatry isn't just an Old Testament thing that we read about in our Bibles. Idolatry lives in our family room. Maybe that's why John Calvin said our hearts are an idol factory. The answer to all this madness isn't simply to renounce the idols of our hearts, but it's to replace the idols of our heart with the worship of God, the ultimate one, our God. First and second Samuel, I believe, exists. It lives to show us, to expose to us the heart of idolatry. So I want to review for us a little bit because it's been a month since we've been in Samuel. Where we left off. Chapter 4 was Israel marching off into battle against the, in, against the Philistines. And remember, let's grab it. They called it it. Let's grab it. It was the Ark of the Covenant. Let's get it. Let's get it off the shelf. Let's, let's march that into battle because we've read about that. That's what you're supposed to do. Just carry that box into battle and the battle will be won they thought of the presence of the lord represented by the ark of the covenant as their little magic box of salvation and we found that the israelites were absolutely destroyed in that battle not only that the ark of the lord was captured by the philistines uh, the two sons of Eli were killed in battle. They were priests, worthless fellows, we were told earlier in um, Samuel. Uh, Eli, when he hears record that the ark has been captured, he himself dies as well. Which brought us to chapter 5 and 6, where the Philistines had captured the ark. And what did they do? They took it with them because that's what you would do. You would capture your enemy's gods is how they viewed the ark of the covenant. So we capture that and we'll put it in with our pantheon of gods, if you will. So, so uh, the ark of the covenant goes and, and they place it before their god Dagon. At which, right, like one of the things we pointed out is be amazed. Be amazed that when Israel was defeated, they weren't taken into exile, but the Lord allowed himself to go into exile, at which point he will utterly destroy the enemy. It's amazing. So Dagon is found decapitated. Uh, the people become diseased. And it really becomes a hilarious story of how do we get rid of this thing? 
they play hot potato with this and just let's let's get it out of here. So they send it back. They send it back to to Israel, to Israelites, and uh, Israel rejoices and they mishandle the ark. And so individuals are killed because they completely disregard the holiness of the Lord. Chapter 6 ends, in light of that, with this question. Who's able to stand before the Lord? That's, that's an entire sermon of itself, isn't it? The, who's able to stand before the Lord? Good, good question, Israel. Good question, Trinity Get this ark, they, they turn into the Philistines. Get this ark away from us. Put it out in the, in the outer perimeters of life. Send it up the road, get it away from us. And that's what brings us to chapter seven. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us this morning. Lord, as Samuel will say to the people then, Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning to direct our hearts to you. Lord, away from these silly little idols that we create, help us to live and serve you only, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we have five points this morning. We're gonna pop through them fairly quickly. Number one, have you found, have you found sin leads to sorrow? Have you found just the emptiness where sin carries us, it promises to us, it tells us a number of lies, and then it just drops us and leaves us. Have you found sin leads to sorrow? This is verses one and two. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadad on the hill, and they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time had passed, some 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. 20 years, 20 years since chapter four, that battle, to now, here, here we are in chapter seven. We come to chapter seven, 20 years has passed, and maybe we might even say, Finally, the people lament. They're grieving, all right? They're in sadness over the state of their sin, which has brought them to this place. Sin ought to bring us to a place of lamenting. You may be here this morning and you're at the tail end of 20 years of sin. In chapter 4, they simply wanted a God they could use and march into battle and assume upon. In chapter 6, they push God to the outer limits of their lives. And we do both chapter 4 and chapter 6. We do the same. Maybe you've been pushing God to the outer perimeters of your life. Maybe you've been engaging in sin and you've come to the end of a number of years and now you're seeing sin is lamentable. Have you found the grief of sin? Godly sorrow over your sin. If so, 
pause and thank God that he has not forgotten you. Sin looks good. Sin is enticing. Sin presents itself as desirable, as the answer, as the hope, etc., etc. It's why sin is tempting. If it wasn't desirable, there would be no temptation, would there? Have you come to the end of your sin? Have you found that the pursuit of sin is an absolute dead end and it leaves you in utter despair? Are you lamenting past decisions and actions? The point this morning isn't simply that we sit in a pile of lamentable tears. Sin leads to sorrow for the one who seeks to live his life for God. The point, the point is once we re- recognize sin, we lament of sin, is that we would turn from said sin and repent. Which leads us to point number two. Have you found the joy of repentance? Sin leads to sorrow. Repentance leads to joy. Christian already read it, but let's look again to verse 3. This, you can just write all over the page here in verses 3 and 4. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. Wow, great. This is no token, sorrowful response being asked for by Samuel. This is not a fleeting remorse. This is not, I'm sorry I got caught, right? Like we hear culturally all these like sorries. And it kind of goes along those lines. Sorry I got caught. Sorry that that offended you. Sorry because I don't like the consequences. Samuel's saying, see how sin is lamentable. Be broken by your sin. And Israel, Trinity, repent. Put away your idols. He says, put away your false gods. Baal, he mentions. Baal is the male god of the storm. Ashtoreth. Ashtoreth is the female god of fertility. They, they had these gods united in their way of thinking. The idolatry here is Baal and Ashtoreth put them together. You have god of storm, female god of fertility. It will produce these gods for us. Crops, which means comfort which means sustenance, which means provider. You, two gods, you are the hope of our existence, our livelihood. We place our hope and our trust in you. Samuel says, repent. Reject what you believe will sustain you. Repent and reject what the world around you is saying to you, this is what you're to trust in and serve him only. What a joy repentance is, church. Psalms 30, you have turned for me my mourning, not not morning and evening, mourning, my grief into dancing. 
You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent, O Lord my God. I will give thanks to you forever. Look closely at verse 3. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisk from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the asterisk and they served the Lord only. The idols, church, are everywhere. Everywhere around us. Money, success, people, whatever your image of a romantic marriage, a husband who leads, a wife who submits, a political agenda, children who obey, especially when in public, conservatism, the Constitution, approval from others, peace and quiet, me time, a certain image, a certain family image, ministry, your ability to be the answer, to be someone else's hope, to be so relied upon to the detriment of your own family, health, or walk with Christ. We make idols out of everything. Perhaps that's why when Martin Luther nailed the thesis to the wall, number one of 95, repentance is to be the habit of life. Repentance is simply acknowledging, God, I need you. Consider how amazing God's mercy and grace is. Because for us, reading this episode here, we got to be thinking, these guys don't deserve that. They don't deserve forgiveness. They don't deserve to be able to repent, cry out to God. God forgives them, and neither do we. Since when is it ever about what we deserve? It's about the faithfulness and the mercy of God that we've already sang about. So here again from Tim Keller in this book, he writes, most people spend their lives trying to make their heart's fondest dreams come true. Isn't that what life is all about? The pursuit of happiness? We search endlessly for ways to acquire things we desire. And we are willing to sacrifice much to achieve them. So true. We never imagined that getting our heart's deepest desires might be the worst thing that could ever happen to us. My wife and I once knew a single woman, Anna, who wanted desperately to have children. She eventually married and contrary to the expectations of her doctors, was able to bear two healthy children despite her age. But her dreams did not come true. Her overpowering drive to give her children a perfect life made it impossible for her to actually enjoy them. Her overprotectiveness, fears and anxieties, and her need to control every detail of her children's lives made the family miserable. Anna's oldest child did poorly in school and showed signs of serious emotional problems. The younger child was filled with anger. There's a good chance her drive to give her children wonderful lives will actually be the thing that ruins them. Getting her heart's desire may end up being the worst thing that ever happened to her. That's what an idol does. Have you found the joy of repentance? We can repent 
of the madness of where our hearts go. We are a repenting people. Number three, moving quickly. Have you found the glory of the mediator who keeps on mediating? Look at verse five. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. I like, I've already referenced a few, few different places, but I like the contrast between chapter 4 and chapter 7. Chapter 4, let's grab the ark. Let's do some hocus pocus and carry it into, into the battle. And of course, we will be victorious already mentioned it in verse number three of chapter four, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. I like chapter seven, verse eight. Don't stop praying, Samuel, that he might save us. We've gone from it might come among us and save us, chapter four, to he might save us, chapter seven. Keep praying, Samuel. Pray on our behalf. Pray that God would deliver us. Pray that he would save us from the Philistines. And Sammy, don't stop praying. We don't simply need a token prayer here. We need ongoing mediator interceding prayer on our behalf. Keep going, Samuel. That's their request. Because we need prayer. Praise be to God. For the work of Jesus Christ. What he accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. But he's not done. He continues to intercede. To mediate on our behalf. He is continuing to mediate. Continuing to priest on our behalf. Your behalf. Make it personal. Like it's just. It blows my mind. Hebrews 7 puts it like this. The former priests, Old Testament priests, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. (laughs) You know what it's saying? You know why there's so many of them? Because they kept dying. That's what it's saying. Because those guys kept dying, there's a whole lot of them. But he holds his priesthood permanently, speaking of Christ. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. When I read a book like like this, I'm going to point to this one now, this one that we're doing now, Gentle and Lowly. When I read a book, I just look for a nugget or two. I'm slow and simple. Just give me, 
out of 200 pages, if I can come home with one great nugget, I'm good. That's a great book. I'm happy with it. Chapter 9 was that for me. It's this point right here where Christ continues to intercede on our behalf. Dane Ortland writes, Christ continues to intercede on our behalf in heaven because we continue to fail here on earth. He does not forgive us through his work on the cross and then hope will make it the rest of the way. Picture a glider pulled up into the sky by an airplane, soon to be released to float down to the earth. We are that glider. Christ is the plane. But he never disengages. He never lets us go, wishing us well, hoping we can glide the rest of the way into heaven. He carries us all the way. That's what he does. That's dizzy glory to me. Just, wow, my God, your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is interceding for you. You. Not just broadly speaking, he intercedes for you. How does he do that? (laughs) That in itself is amazing. But me. They were aware of their helplessness. We need you, Samuel. Keep praying. Are we aware of our helplessness? Or did you somehow receive salvation by grace? And then determined, okay, thank you, Jesus. That should be good for now. I'm good to go. I've got it the rest of the way. Are you aware of your helplessness? I love it. Samuel continues to pray and the enemy is defeated. And I want to say to us this morning, your ultimate enemy will be defeated. Not because of you. But because Christ is interceding on behalf of you. He continues to be the priest. Your enemy of sin will be defeated because Christ is interceding for you. Your enemy of death will be defeated because Christ is interceding for you. You're going to make it to the finish line because your great high priest is interceding for you. Have you found the glory of the mediator who just keeps on mediating? Number four, have you found the awe of victory that follows repentance? Verse number nine. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered. What was that like? With a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. We say often here at Trinity, if you're new, we regularly like to point out, like to say, the Old Testament, all these different episodes, they're they're not just narrative. They are pointers. They point us. Christ is coming. Christ is coming. This here is a pointer 
a signpost, if you will, to Christ. Samuel, actually, it's a whole different sermon that we can't preach this morning. Just give it one sentence. Samuel right here is prophet, priest, and king. In the absence of a priest, Samuel performs priestly duties by making sacrifices and offering them to the Lord on behalf of the people. What is Samuel doing? Why is he sacrificing that lamb? And why is he offering it to the Lord? Well, because the consequence of sin is death. The priestly function was to offer those sacrifices on behalf of the people to the Lord. But we know from Hebrews, these offerings, these sacrifices, every sacrifice was just another pointer to... Christ is coming. The sacrifice is coming. Another animal slaughtered. Blood is spilled. It's pointing. You know what? That sacrifice, that's that's only as good as our next sin. Sin, sin, well, we just we just blew it again. All the blood spilled, all the animals sacrificed. Christ is coming. It's why, right? You know this, but we need to be stunned freshly by it. It's why John the Baptist said, and when he saw Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, the sacrifice of God, the one and only sacrifice where no more sacrifice will be needed because this sacrifice, he will be sacrificed of his own will. We lay down his life for our sins, his substitute. He will take our place. Uh, We're the ones that should be penalized. We're the ones that should be sacrificed. No, he will sacrifice himself in our stead. Because the penalty of our sin deserved no less than death. Well, on the cross, he offers us forgiveness where we can repent and we can trust in him and we can be made right with God the Father. And I love how, he put, how the Bible puts it, but the Lord thundered. Samuel's offering up sacrifice, but the Lord thundered. <laughs> Do you remember? It's a small note, so you probably don't remember, but when we preached the second sermon, I think it was the second or third sermon in Samuel, and it was Hannah's song. And the point I was making is the song is just bigger than than the moment. Like, I get it. You're having a baby boy. But some of the things she sings is much bigger than, I'm having a baby boy. This is one of those moments. Chapter 2, verse 10. Hannah is singing, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to to pieces. Against them, he will thunder in heaven. Chapter 7, we see the Lord thundering with a mighty sound. What was that like exactly? Wouldn't you like to know? And his enemies were defeated. They were utterly destroyed. I love how when Jesus is in Gethsemane and the Lord comes to, to, to speak that 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 this is my son, and, and some of the crowd responds with, was that thunder? Or maybe it was an angel. We're not sure what that was, but something was thunderous in the voice of the Lord there. 
There's nothing more thunderous in my mind than the atonement of Christ, where the Savior, Jesus Christ, defeated the enemy of sin and death. Have you found the awe of the victory that comes with repentance? Your Savior, if you have repented of your sins and you're trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, your Savior has thundered on your behalf. He has defeated your ultimate enemy, sin and death and Satan himself. Have you found the awe of victory that follows repentance? Hear me. Victory does not belong to everyone. Victory belongs to those who repent and trust in Christ. Do you know that thunder of the Lord? Has he thundered in your life? Number five. Have you found Ichabod to give way to Ebenezer? Verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. Yeah, you just thought that was a Scrooge guy. It's not. For he said, till now, the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. From Ekron to Gath and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. Chapter 4, chapter 7. Keep going back to chapter 4 and chapter 7. Chapter 4, you know how chapter 4 ended? So the runner had come back and he told Eli, we're defeated. And that actually didn't end Eli's life. Your sons have died in battle. And that didn't end Eli's life. The ark of the Lord has been captured and he fell over dead. There's a lot of things Eli didn't get. And we blame him a lot for those things he didn't get. He got it there. That was announced to him. His daughter-in-law, one of the son's wife, was in labor. And she will die in labor. But before she dies, what? She says, his name is Ichabod. The glory of the Lord has departed. End of story. No. No. Have you found Ichabod to give way to Ebenezer? Chapter 7 ends with Ebenezer. Ebenezer means the Lord has helped us. It, it, it literally, probably you have a footnote down at the Bible, bottom of your Bible where it'll say, Ebenezer, the stone of help, is what it was. Ebenezer is where they lost that first battle in chapter 4. 20 years later, well, that was Ebenezer, that was Ichabod Ebenezer. Now it is Ebenezer, the Lord has helped, the stone of help. Robert Bergen puts it this way, all that was lost through sin in the first Ebenezer, that's chapter 4, was restored through repentance in the second, that's chapter 7. Meaning Samuel is here and he's marking this place. This is 
Ebenezer. Have you sung that song and you wonder what in the world is an Ebenezer? Right? Like, I don't know. Like, I think it's somewhere below the knee. Ebenezer, this is where we were defeated 20 years ago. This is now where victory lies 20 years later. This stone is being set up by Samuel. This is a commemoration of the power of God where God thundered on behalf of his people to save his people, Ebenezer. Samuel's saying, we're going to mark this spot because I want you to remember it. And I don't want you to remember it for a week or a month or a year. I want you to remember it for generations. I want this stone to mark this spot where the hand of the Lord moved right here. Come back to this stone and remember the Lord's faithfulness on your behalf. God responded to your repentance and he thundered on your behalf and he saved you. So let's mark it this day so we remember it for generations to come. Let's mark the spot where the chronically unfaithful were delivered by the faithful covenant-keeping God. Samuel's interceding. Samuel's sacrificing. He's mediating. Their enemy is defeated. And so Samuel grabs a stone. Don't know what that looked like. Ebenezer, a place to remember. Hear me, church, believers in Jesus Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, your life was once Ichabod. It was absolutely Ichabod. The glory of the Lord has departed. But at repentance, grace came, and it is now Ebenezer. The Lord has thundered on your behalf, defeating your ultimate enemy. Ebenezer, the Lord has helped. Not, not, not as in, oh, he's my helper. Like me and the Lord, we're getting this done, sort of helping sort of way. No, this is, I, I've got nothing. You've got nothing. And the Lord through and through is your helper. He gets it all done on your behalf. Do you know this help of the Lord? I'm grateful for Mr. Robert Robinson. He died in 1790. Do you know when he was 22 years old, he wrote, Come Thou Fount? 22 years old. 22 years old. My goodness, what am I doing with my life? (laughs) He wrote these words. You know it. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Here by thy great help I've come. And I hope by thy good pleasure, safely to arrive at home. We, we have an Ebenezer of sorts. You know, we've got an Ebenezer. We celebrated with it last week. Reminders of the faithfulness of the Lord. It's called communion. Paul to the Corinthians, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. You're you're, you're coming back to that stone, if you will. And you're being reminded, not for a week, a month, or a year, but for generations, the faithfulness of of our Lord and how he has thundered on our behalf. You are proclaiming in that supper, 
the Lord's victory over death. You are proclaiming that the Lord will bring you safely all the way home. We sing about the cross and then we sing that the tomb is empty and we are saved. What, what is all of that? That is our Ebenezer moment. We're gathering together at our Mizpah. It's right here in Titusville, in this building. All the church gathers together in this local church, comes together to worship our God, to remember all that the Lord has done on our behalf. Praise God. We gather not at Mizpah. We gather every Sunday right here. And there's an enemy that sees this gathering as a threat. That's how the Philistines viewed that. When they, when the, when they came together at Mizpah, there was, there was this, hey, that's a threat to us. They're coming together. Um, we're going to go attack that. Church, the cross shows us Christ has ultimate, ultimate, ultimate victory. Have you seen? Do you know? The, well, chapter 4, Ichabod, the glory's departed. Chapter 7, Ebenezer, the Lord is my help. Would you stand with me? If you're on the live stream, I would ask for you to stick around with us after the song. I think I've got a couple words I would like to direct specifically if you're watching from the live stream. But would you just lift our voices, direct your hearts to the Lord. You may be here or you might be on the live stream and you just need to simply repent. Oh, the many idols that we set up before God. Oh, that we'd be a repenting people. That that would just be a regular part of our life. That we would know the joy of repentance. Because behind that repentance is the Lord's forgiveness. The Lord turns our mourning into gladness and joy. So let's lift our voices and sing to Him. Despair sets in when we make a good thing an ultimate thing, and that thing was never created to be an ultimate thing. So when that thing that we've become made to be an ultimate thing is gone, there's no intent with the ultimate thing. Thus, despair is a terrible thing. Because the good thing turned into an ultimate thing gave gave you or I a sense of affirmation or success or accomplishment. This thing became something that you run to, you're hoping, you're trusting, you find satisfaction from. Good things are not to be an ultimate thing. Personal example, when the kids were young, my idol of comfort was often exposed. I 
Somebody get me some iced tea. It's time to rest. That's a good thing. That's a biblical thing. It's time to rest, but the problem is my children didn't understand that this is my ultimate thing. As if they woke up that morning discussing, you know, when dad gets home, we are so going to wreck his rest. That's our goal for the day. Because they greatly regret my idle company. And I would sin to get my ultimate thing at that point. You know you've got an idol when you're willing to sin to get it. I wanted something from family life that only God could give. I was asking of my children to give me ultimate things. And I could have went creative to reach those things. You see, idolatry isn't just an Old Testament thing that we read about in our Bibles. Idolatry is in our family life. Maybe that's why John Calvin said our hearts are an idol factory. The answer to all this madness isn't simply to renounce the idols of our hearts, but it's to replace the idols of our heart with the worship of God, the ultimate one, our God. First and second Samuel, I believe, exists, it lives to show us, to expose to us the heart of idolatry. So I want to review for us a little bit because it's been a month since we've been in Samuel. Where we left off. Chapter 4 was Israel marching off into battle against, against the Philistines. Remember? Let's grab it. They called it it. Let's grab it. It was the Ark of the Covenant. Let's get it. Let's get it off the shelf. Let's, let's march that into battle because we've read about that. That's what you're supposed to do. Just carry that box into battle and the battle will be won. They thought of the presence of the Lord represented by the Ark of the Covenant as their little magic box of salvation. And we found that the Israelites were absolutely destroyed in that battle. Not only that, the Ark of the Lord was captured by the Philistines. Uh, the two sons of Eli were killed in battle. They were priests, worship fellows. They were told earlier in Samuel. Uh, Eli, when he hears record that the ark has been captured, he himself dies as well. Which brought us to chapter 5 and 6, where the Philistines had captured the ark, and what did they do? They took it with them, because that's what you would do. You would capture your enemy's gods, is how they viewed the ark of the covenant. So we capture that, and we'll put it in with our pantheon of gods, if you will. So, so uh, the ark of the covenant goes, and Place it before their god Dagon. At which, right, like one of the things we pointed out is be amazed. Be amazed that when Israel was defeated, they weren't taken into exile, but the Lord allowed himself to go into exile, at which point he will utterly destroy the enemy. It's amazing. So Dagon is found decapitated. Uh, the people become diseased. And it really becomes a hilarious story of how do we get rid of this thing? They play hot potato with this thing. 
send it back. They send it back to, to Israel, the Israelites. And uh, Israel rejoices and brings Israel to God. They say individuals are privileged because they completely disregard the holiness of the Lord. Chapter 6 ends, in light of that, with this question. Who's able to stand before the Lord? That's, that's an entire sermon of itself, isn't it? That who's able to stand before the Lord? Good, good question, Israel. Good question, Trinity. Get this ark. They, they turn into the Philistines. Get this ark away from us. Put it out in the, in the outer perimeters of life. Send it up the road. Get it away from us. And that's what brings us to chapter.
to the Lord. 
Israel put away the Baals and the Asherahs, and they serve the Lord only. Conservatives, the Constitution, approval from others, peace and quiet. Me time, a certain image, a certain family image, ministry. Your ability to be the answer, to be someone else's hope, to be so relied upon to the detriment of your own family Consider how amazing God's mercy and grace is. Because for us, reading this episode here, we got to be thinking, these guys don't deserve that. They don't deserve forgiveness. They don't deserve to be able to repent, cry out to God. God forgives them, and neither do we. Since when is it ever about what you deserve? It's about the faithfulness and the mercy of God that we already sent you. Here again from Tim Keller in this book. He writes, Most people spend their lives trying to make their heart's fondest dreams come true. Isn't that what life is all about? The pursuit of happiness? We search endlessly for ways to acquire things we desire, and we are willing to sacrifice much to achieve them. We never imagined that getting our heart's deepest desires might be the worst thing that could ever happen to us. My wife and I She eventually married, and contrary to the expectations of her doctors, was able to bear two healthy children despite her age. But her dreams did not come true. Her overpowering drive to give her children a perfect life made it impossible for her to actually enjoy them. Her overprotectiveness, fears and anxieties, and her need to control every detail of her children's lives made the family miserable. Anna's oldest child did poorly in school and showed signs of serious emotional problems. The younger child is filled with anger. There's a good chance her drive to give her children wonderful lives will actually be the thing that ruins them. Getting her heart's desire may end up being the worst thing that ever happened to her. Go ahead, Have you found what you are repenting? Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. 
chapter 4. Let's grab the ark. Let's do some hocus pocus and carry it into, into the battle. And of course, we will be victorious. I already mentioned it in verse number 3 of chapter 4 that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. I like chapter 7 verse 8. Don't stop praying, Samuel, that he might save us. We've gone from it might come among us and save us, chapter 4, to he might save us, chapter 7. Keep praying, Samuel. Pray on our behalf. Pray that God would deliver us. Pray that he would save us from the Philistines. And Sammy, don't stop praying. We don't simply need a token prayer here. We need ongoing mediator interceding prayer. On our behalf, keep going, Samuel. That's what he said. Because we need prayer. Praise be to God for the work of Jesus Christ. What he accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. What he has done for us. He continues. He intercedes to mediate on our behalf. through his work on the cross and then hope will make it the rest of the way. 
she will die in that. But when she dies, what? He says, his name is Ichabod. The glory of the Lord has departed from him. And the story is Thank you. 